Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and I am here with my co-host, Curriculum Karen Henson. <laughs> I like that you added the last name to it. It's so formal. <laughs> so formal. Otherwise known as Curriculum Karen. Yeah. Otherwise known as Karen Henson. So many choices. I know. Man, I am very versatile. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. What are we doing today? We're going to be talking to Dr. Mike Wilkins for part two of the book of Matthew. Yeah, yeah. We're going to continue our conversation with Mike. So hope you guys enjoy this episode. We're back this week with Dr. Mike Wilkins. He is a professor out at Biola University and is a Matthew expert. He wrote the NIV application commentary on the book of Matthew. So definitely encourage you guys to pick that up. He's a one of the top Matthew scholars in the world, and uh, the NIV application commentary is pretty much broadly considered the best commentary on Matthew out there. So, Mike, man, we're privileged to have you back. Well, thank you. It's my privilege to be with you. Last week, we ended off looking at this portrait of Jesus that Matthew is painting as this uh, son of David, the Messiah, to the Jews, but then through the Jews also to the Gentiles. But this week, let's just kind of move through the book itself. And so uh, you mentioned a little bit last week, the genealogy or the background, the origin of the story. And so how, how does Matthew start his gospel and what's he trying to communicate in those first handful of chapters? So he begins with a narrative of Jesus, Emmanuel, the Messiah of Israel and the hope of the Gentiles. And this runs from chapters one through four, so he arrives to uh, and is declared to be the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. And then immediately the narrative jumps ahead some 30 years to where John the Baptist comes on the scene. And then Jesus is baptized by John. And once again, it's fulfillment language to fulfill all righteousness, which indicates that Jesus didn't need to be baptized for repentance, but he is identifying with repentant sinners and has come to fulfill the hope that uh, all peoples uh, would now be able to receive this righteousness from God. And then immediately in chapter 4, Jesus advances his own messianic ministry, his public ministry, first by being tempted and then by going out with the gospel message. So chapters 1 through 4 are powerful to introduce Jesus as his soon arriving Messiah. That's good. So a couple of things I'd like to double-click on in this section is, one, it's, it's a pretty common question that people have a lot of time about the fact that we know so little about Jesus's childhood. So why do you think that is? Why do you think Matthew just kind of skips over that? I would say that each of the gospel writers do is to focus on the public ministry and the arrival of the kingdom. That's the real important message that these gospel writers wanted to get across. Yeah, that's good. Luke gives a little bit of Jesus' earthly life and allows us to see that he developed in wisdom and strength and in favor with God and men. So he developed in all areas of humanity. And what that then is just really telling us is that Jesus is the example of what my life should be that's impacted by the kingdom. So he focuses, as Matthew did, he focuses on what is really primary, and that has to do with the arrival of the kingdom. Yeah, that's super helpful. I think we like to read the Gospels like they're 
a biography of the life of Christ and we want all the details and when he was 12, this happened. And when he was 14, this happened. And the reality is we have to learn to read the gospels in light of their purpose. That's right. And to be able to pick out those things that are highlighting Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the fulfillment of the old Testament, instead of looking for the details of his life that maybe didn't accomplish that purpose. Yeah. And also the Greco Roman biography style is very different than the modern biography style. What do you that's, mean by that? Well, it's that's like the modern biography is going to give you a, a much more comprehensive, like kind of linear flow of this. Is, these were his parents. This is what he was born into. This yeah. was a childhood. This is really what shaped him in his childhood. This is what later would become this, this, or this, you know, and, it, and they're just going to give you a much more linear type story as opposed to what Strauss would call like a portrait, mm. you know, and in the Greco-Roman biography, the author is, like Mike just said a second ago, he's going to double click and focus on what's right. really important to him, which yeah. is not. <laughs> what's important to us. It reminds yeah, exactly. me of like the cultural lenses that we're reading the gospels yeah, totally. through. Like yeah. we like linear. That's how our brains work yeah. in 21st century America. And yeah. so that's how we would like to read the Bible back. Yeah, it's like, hey, where's all this missing information? And I think the authors in the ancient world are like, that's not what I'm trying to tell you. Yeah. You know, so yeah, exactly. And then later on, you you find in what are called apocryphal gospels, you have these fanciful stories about Jesus um, turning little kids into donkeys yeah. that were hassling him, and <laughs> totally. you know, making yeah. So all these because people are are curious, yeah, and so they. They try to, you know, make up stories mm-hmm. that fills in the gaps for what their interests might have been. But they were always rejected by the early church. So the second thing I wanted to ask about this section is Isaiah 7. So uh, verse 14 in Isaiah 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So obviously Matthew takes this verse and applies it to Jesus. Talk to us about, like, what's the context of Isaiah 7, and why is Matthew plucking that out and applying it to Jesus? Well, what we would have found then in what Matthew is doing is he is saying that this was fulfilled in the time of Ahaz in the house of Judah, that there would be a sign that was given that by the time this child was born, uh, there would be a relief from the threat of invasion. So he's saying that in the same way that that happened then, now we have another virgin who will not just give birth to a child, but will give birth to a child while still a virgin. Mm -hmm. And so there's this powerful thing that Matthew's readers would have recollected this story from the Old Testament as having significance now in their lifetime. So pretty powerful kind of dual fulfillment. Uh, and Matthew's brilliant that way. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, man, I read that a while ago and it just kind of struck me that here you have, you know, you have Ahaz who's kind of freaking out. You know, he's like, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. these kings are about to like annihilate us. Lord, where are you? Yes. And Isaiah's like, hey, hang on. You know, there's going to be a child who's born. And oh, by the way, that child that's born is a sign that your enemies are going to be driven away. That's right. And that'll preach. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I it's, it, it's like uh, maybe what Matthew is trying to say is that the birth of Jesus is the victory of God. 
Yes. The enemies of God will be driven out. And uh, that's a powerful way to start your gospel. <laughs> It really that's, a, is. that's sticking a uh, a flag in the ground and saying, "Hey, that is." And then what's where he takes us next? And we jump into chapter two. Jesus is going to be born in Nazareth. He's mm-hmm. going to be called the Nazarene. Yeah. And so, what he's going to be considered there is a person who comes out of a scornful Nazareth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he's he's not going to be in a glamorous setting such as a palace in Jerusalem. Instead, he's going to be in a backwater town. Uh, He's going to be considered almost a person of scorn. So Matthew doesn't try to whitewash anything. He says this is exactly what God has planned, that he will be a Messiah from the people themselves. And I think it points to the kind of, um, we're beginning to get this picture of the upside down nature of the way God is, is moving into to be with his people. It's not fanfare. It's not parades. It's yeah, not yeah. trumpets and celebrations. It's a baby in a manger yeah. <laughs> yeah. who's, who grows up in this backwoods kind of town in Northern Israel, you know, where, where people have an accent, you know, and that's the son of David. <laughs> and we know. judge them for being confused. <laughs> like, come on, <laughs> nobody expected yeah, that. Exactly. Right. So as we move on into the Sermon on the Mount, so the next few chapters, which we would say is one of the most famous teachings Mm -hmm. of all time by anybody. If we were to read this today, honestly, he jumps from topic to topic quite a lot. And we wouldn't say it's the perfect sermon by our standards (laughs) in seminary. Right. And so help us understand what's the significance of this sermon. Uh, Who is he teaching to? What point is he trying to make? Yeah, it is. This is one of the most powerful sermons in all of recorded history, but it's certainly not the way that we would expect it to be given today in many of our churches. And that's, I think that's exactly what the point is, is that uh, it's being given to disciples, uh, allowing them to understand what life in the kingdom is going to be all about. It's also at uh, the same time as uh, instruction for the disciples, it is also an invitation to the crowds saying that, you know, this isn't just for my exclusive little 12. This is for all the people of Israel. It's an invitation. It's a, it's a tantalizing taste of what kingdom life is all about. It also is not just instruction to disciples, not just invitation to the crowds, but it's also a warning and rebuke to the religious leaders of Israel that the kingdom is going to be a, a very different kind of thing than what you may have anticipated. Jesus in sermon, kind of one of the pinnacle verses or keys to it, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the most righteous externally of anybody. And what Jesus is now saying is that my kingdom doesn't work from the outside in. It works from the inside out. And there's going to be a new kind of righteousness. The the Pharisees were the most scrupulous of all in obeying the commands of the Old Testament. But Jesus will even say later that they are like whitewashed tombs. Mm -hmm. They're beautiful on the outside, but they're full of dead bones on the inside. And so that's what the kingdom is all about. The kingdom is, is not this external powerful force, but it's an internal powerful force that begins transformation on the inside and works to the outside. 
such a powerful sermon. Oh, yeah, for sure. So one of the questions that people have uh, consistently is, you know, you have this you have this Matthew 5, 17 verse, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then right after that, he's like, hey, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. And now a lot of times that's confusing for people because they're like, wait a minute, I thought you said you weren't going to abolish the law, but you just said you're, it's almost like there's this new message or something like that. So what, what's he doing there with that yeah. teaching style? Well, especially if, if Matthew 5, starting at verse 18 through verse uh, 48, those what are called the antitheses. Mm-hmm. And what, what he's doing is he's not contrasting his teaching with the Old Testament. Good. But he's contrasting his teaching with the religious leaders whom he had just said are not a part of the kingdom. So he said, you have heard it said in the Old Testament, so and so and so and so. And then here's how the Pharisees would have interpreted it. But here's the right way of fulfilling the law Mm. so that it isn't just enough to avoid murder, but it's to avoid anger. It's not enough just to avoid adultery. But it's to say that you have eyes only for one husband or eyes only for one wife. The scribes and the Pharisees would have just said, no, just you just got to obey the letter of the law. Right. And once again, what Jesus is doing to all of those in those verses is he's saying, here's the external fulfillment of the Pharisees. But I'm taking you to an internal fulfillment what is the intent and motive of the law, not just external legalistic obedience? Do you think it's fair to say that what we see in the sermon is not Jesus trying to do away with the Old Testament, but reform yes. the understanding that the religious leaders had in the first century? Yes, very much he's so. Trying to, he's trying to put the Old Testament back where it belongs. That's right. So we still have an Old Testament. We don't do away with it. Yeah, right. But what we do is we now understand how the intent and motive is to be obeyed, not just the external legalistic obedience. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing we don't struggle with legalism today anymore. <laughs> Get away with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I mean that, that's the other thing about this, though. It's like, I mean, Dadgum, this is this happened a couple of thousand years ago, yeah. you know. And you look at this stuff, and you're like, dang, man, that's it's very much applicable for yeah, today. Not much that's has right. changed. That's right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So we move to this next section. We'll just say maybe like eight to thirteen ish. You have a lot of different stories here, both where Jesus is interacting with people who need intervention, whether it's through a sick woman, a raising a girl from the dead, healing a blind man, people going out. There, all this seems to be fairly fragmented. And then, of course, he moves in, you know, really culminating in chapter 13 with these parables of the kingdom. And so help walk us through this section. What's he doing the way that I break it down is uh, you have five basic discourses of Jesus. You have the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. You have the Mission Discourse in chapter 10. You have the Parables in chapter 13. You have the Church Discourse telling you, and that's the only time the word church is used in uh, the Gospels. It's in Matthew and both 16 and 18. So the church is now prophesied, and this is what the church is going to be all about. And then the fifth discourse is the eschatological or the teaching about the last times. Mm -hmm. So those are the five basic discourses. And the narrative in between each of those 
shows who Jesus truly is and why he has the authority to be able to give these discourses. Mm -hmm. So chapters 9 are a collection of miracles. Uh, what we had in the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, is that Jesus is the Messiah in word. In chapters 8 and 9, with all the miracles, Matthew is allowing us to see that Jesus is Messiah in deed or in action. And he's able to cleanse, he's able to heal, he's able to do all of these things that are the demonstration the kingdom has has arrived. Raise the dead, calm the storm. Those are cosmic type. They oh, are. Well, at least calming the storm is like a cosmic right. type. Hey, this guy. That's is, right. <laughs> Lights are flashing. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> There's something different about yeah. that guy. Yeah. So anyway, those are those are the way that I see it. You know, it, what you have in each of the narrative is you have this Jesus that um, gives us the example of what true humanity is all about, mm -hmm. and we can we can follow his example. Uh, while at the same time he is God and uh, he, he is demonstrating that the kingdom has arrived in his person as the Messiah. To follow it, the narrative discourse, narrative discourse, and what those give you is a full-blown picture of what discipleship to Jesus is all about. Mm -hmm. So when we get to the parables that he tells, which are a pretty good chunk of this, especially in chapter 13, where he does the parable of the sower who's sowing seed and yeah. and then the uh, the weeds, which I think is really interesting because what's fascinating about the parable of the weeds is Jesus says, hey, there's this guy, and he's sowing good seed in his field, but then everybody went to sleep, and this dude came in and sowed weeds among his wheat so that the wheat sprouted and so did the weeds. And so later the owner's servants come to him and say, Hey, didn't you just sow good seed? Mm. And the guy's response is, an enemy did this. Mm. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? And, yeah. and they're like, well, do you want us to pull up the weeds? And he's like, no, because if you pull up the weeds, you're going to get some of the wheat. You know, just like, leave it and I'll sift it later. You know, what do you make of that? Well, I think it goes along with Jesus describes here as the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom is going to be operating in this age in a mystery fashion, not that it's a mystery to be solved, but it's this was not expected in the Old Testament. Mm. And so it is now in a mystery form. It's not operating externally. It's operating internally. Um, he hasn't come to overthrow the evil one yet. Mm. Uh, that will come. And we see that in some of the other parables where there will be judgment at the end and the the wicked one will be judged at that time. But what he has done is is he's showing us that the kingdom is going to operate in an undercover kind of a way. Mm. I call it a clandestine kingdom. Uh, it's not in an external form, and it's just allowing the kingdom to operate in this mystery form throughout the age. Yeah, and I think it, it underscores, because he does, it, he, this is one of the parables he goes on to explain. He yes. says, all right, let me tell you who these people are, you know. And he says in verse 39, the enemy who sows them is the devil. Yes. This one who is the enemy of God. And uh, it's interesting because in the middle of all this, I think Jesus very much saw himself both as a reformer of what Judaism had become, but then also one who was looking beyond the religious leaders to the actual enemy who stood behind them. 
That's right. And so you, at least, I think in, in his mind, and I think what Matthew is pulling out here is that Jesus is going, no, this is much bigger than just my relationship with the religious leaders. This has cosmic-type implications for yes. the entire world, right, and frankly, right. all of creation as the kingdom of God. Yeah, it, does, it doesn't answer all of our questions as to why God has done it this way in this age, but it helps us to understand the how. This is how things are going to work during this age. Yeah. You may not be able to figure out all the whys, but this is the how. This is the way to live it. Well, and I think, too, there's just from an apologetic standpoint, I think when a lot of times we'll look at difficulty or pain or something like that, and we'll look at it and go, ah, man, why is God doing this to me? Yes. You know, Or something like that. And I think what Matthew is trying to portray and what Jesus was saying is, hey, there's another person that's involved in this, and he's an enemy. Yes. And so you you see this picture of, no, I'm actually moving against him and doing so in a way that's not going to totally obliterate all of creation. Yes, good. There's this kind of um, incremental type movement of God through his kingdom to, to save the world. Good, good. The next narrative would be the narrative of chapter four. And what we get in the narrative of chapter four is Jesus now revealing his true identity. We've been getting hints of it in Matthew's narrative, but now Jesus publicly is going to reveal his identity. Uh, he's, he's the divine one. He is worshipped by the disciples as the Son of God when he calms the sea. So the full identity of Jesus as Messiah is revealed, but then something else happens in chapter 16 that's powerful. And that's where Jesus, who, who do people say that I am? And then he, he draws it out of Peter. Well, Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter steps forward as a spokesman for the disciples. You are the son of God, son of the living God. And this is full disclosure of who they now understand Jesus to be. But what's fascinating is immediately after that, Jesus says, now you have to understand what kind of Messiah I will be. Not just the Son of God, but I'm going to be a suffering Messiah. Yeah, yeah, I'm going good. to be arrested. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be crucified. And I will rise again. This was never expected. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's just kind of blowing them all away after they've just given this great declaration of who he is. Mm. Now Jesus reveals, but I'm going to be a suffering Messiah. I'm not going to be the victorious one that you want. I'm going to be a suffering one. And then Peter tries to stop him. (laughs) Bad bad move, Peter. Yeah, yeah. Jesus is like, we're going to turn left here. And Peter's like, no. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. And yet what what Jesus reveals in that, even with what Peter does, he says, get behind me, Satan. Not that Peter is Satan now, but Mm -hmm. rather he is being tempted by Satan to try to get Jesus to uh, not go to the cross. Mm -hmm. The same thing that Satan had done in the temptations in chapter four. Yeah, I'll give you the kingdom without the cross. Yes, right. That's right. So this is all just very important for Matthew to clarify who Jesus really is. Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to look at Peter and be like, 
bro, keep your mouth shut. But <laughs> the reality is like he loved Jesus. This was his friend. His yes. Dis- like yes. he was his mentor. He was the person that he knew was going to save the world. And so of course he didn't want him to die. Yeah. Like that makes so much sense. And we would have done the same thing and our hearts would have been tempted to say the exact same thing of no, you don't have to die. Yeah. Especially when you don't have a category yes. for that to fit into. It's like yes. you are the king what are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah, there's no category of a suffering Messiah. Yeah, they just couldn't get it. I mean, then what's going to happen is th- then they'll go back and read Isaiah 53, which speaks of this slain yeah. Messiah, and then mm-hmm. th- they'll begin to get it. Oh, my goodness, this was a part of God's plan from the very beginning. But we didn't want that. No, we wanted a victorious guy. We wanted to rule. But that wasn't God's plan from the beginning. Yeah. And that continues to be a battle throughout the New Testament. We look at Paul's, the letters that he is writing to his churches, and they're saying, hey, we don't trust you because of how much you've suffered. When the reality is like, that's exactly what Jesus has called us to as his people. Very much so. And it continues to be a battle. It continues to be a battle for us today. As we look at that, yeah. we're like, do we really want to follow? Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah, so you have this confession and prediction by Jesus, and then you immediately have this transfiguration. Mm-hmm. So, like, to speak r- very briefly on that, what's the significance of that? Why would Jesus grab kind of his inner circle and take him up and unambiguously show them, hey, this is who I am? Right, right, right. A couple things happening here. One, as Paul lays out so very clearly, Jesus laid aside his glory to become a human. Uh, so that he could become then a very human divine sacrifice for the sins of humanity. What Jesus now does in the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 is that just for a moment, they're going to get it. He's already said he's going to be this suffering crucified Messiah. Now his glory is revealed once again. He's transfigured to show who he was before he came to this earth. He was the glorious one. And the father immediately says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Mm -hmm. And so what you get is now both sides. You get the suffering Messiah and you get the glorious Messiah. And we just can't handle that. Peter couldn't do it. He wanted now to pitch tents (laughs) and just kind of hang out there. What Jesus was as the God man is the most stupendous event of human history but we are just way too comfortable with it you know Mm. we've we've heard it in countless sermons many have been raised with it it's it doesn't blow us away anymore Mm. and that's i think one of the things that i love to do in in reading through matthew reading through all the gospels is to be blown away by jesus i'm sometimes just way too comfortable with them and then i then all i'm doing really is just playing religious games. Mm. If I'm not blown away by Jesus as the God man, this one event in human history, I don't get it. Yeah. Or you're delusional. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I like, I, it's like every time you see Jesus as he actually is not in the taking on the humility of uh, human flesh, but you see him like in the revelation or yeah. other places, then the response is not, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's that story again. I mean, people are falling, fr- totally down. freaking out, yeah. Yeah. falling yes. down, and yeah. Yes. And and I think also it shows just the character and the nature of Jesus 
that his response is always, Hey guys, don't be afraid. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Uh, yeah. Good word, man. So there's a theme over the next handful of chapters and I loved you just, just kind of speak to that as well, but you have this kind of, sometimes it's known as the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. You have the, uh, this teaching by Jesus of, Hey, the, the greatest among you, it will be the least. Yeah. Um, and, and then the, the you have the children coming mm-hmm. to him. You have kind of this, the first will be last teaching that permeates this section. So uh, what do you make of that? How do you think one, the, the people who heard him say this, I mean, what, what are they processing is, and, and then how do we process that? Yeah. What we get in uh, starting at chapter 18, and it runs from 18 up through chapter 20, Jesus now reveals that his new community is not going to be a temple. His new community is going to be a church. It's going to be a gathered group of people. And it's going to be operating in a very different way than what worldly forms of community are all about, where it's usually competition, it's comparison, um, it's uh, one-upsmanship, yep. just all that stuff that characterizes so many of our human institutions. And what Jesus does in chapters 18 through 20 is that he shows that my community is going to be based on humility, uh, like a child. It's going to be based on forgiveness, uh, if you don't forgive, it shows that you aren't forgiven. So this is a whole different community. It's not going to be greatness, but it's going to be servanthood. Mm. So what, what he has done is he's now in these chapters revealing that it's a very different kind of community than many were expecting. And it's very different than the way in which many of them were operating already yeah, with yeah. their statements of who is going to be the greatest. The brothers come and say, can I sit in your left and right hand side when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus just turns that upside down and says, that's not the way of my kingdom. Yeah. My kingdom is what I'm going to do. Uh, I've not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. That's what the community of the church is to be all about. Yeah, that that's always been a funny story for me when uh, you know the the sons of Zebedee come. They're actually their mom, right? Like yeah. losers. <laughs> and now I can just see him be like, "Mom, what are you Stop. doing? Stop talking about it." But she's posturing, you know, for her yeah. boys to try to get them, you know, in this privileged position. Yeah. And what what it may be, um, and not everybody goes with this, but it's, it's plausible that mom is Salome. And Salome may very well be Jesus' aunt. So it might be Ooh, that Salome is Mary's sister. And that's why she comes with um, with the kinship advantage. Yeah, yeah. Um, She's and like, hey, boy, this that's family. Why, yeah, that's, and that's why the other boys are, are upset, indignant, because she's playing the family card. Yeah. So if that's the way it is. It helps us to understand a little bit more of what is the motivation behind them. And what's interesting, though, to me is, especially in other Gospels, this is highlighted, where uh, Jesus is saying, hey, uh, who is my family? Yes. Who are my mother and yes. brothers and sisters? And really, which this is crazy revolutionary, especially in the ancient Near East, is a very sh- a strong mm-hmm. group culture. 
for Jesus to uh, redefine the family. Right? Yes. That's, yes. Dude, that's crazy. That well, is. it's not always a command to like leave your family, but if it's at the cost of not worshiping Christ as yeah. he so deserves, yeah. then, then yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yes. So all that happens. And then Jesus really from the time of the transfiguration, the, the Peter's confession, his rebuke, the transfiguration, Jesus kind of turns, uh, I've heard some scholars say, he kind of turns his face toward mm-hmm. Jerusalem yes, to this downward way to the cross. And that, that begins, that uh, really kind of speeds up the beginning of the Passion Week, yes. which is this triumphal entry. Yes. And it's, this kind of culminates, as we're talking, you know, I'm thinking about what you said a few minutes ago. Nobody's expecting for the triumphant Messiah to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like what? Where, what's going on there? Where's the chariot? Yeah, exactly. And all of the conquered enemies yeah. that you have in tow, you know? So what's happening here? Yeah, it's it, what we get, as you, as you said, it, with the starting with the triumphal entry, is that what Jesus is now coming, he is coming into Jerusalem to assert his divine authority over Israel, assert his divine authority over Israel's leadership, especially. And that what he is showing is that he is a triumphant king of Israel, but he is coming in a way, once again, that is so unexpected by many, Hmm. uh, that he isn't entering triumphantly and overthrowing Rome Instead, what does he do is he goes into the temple and he overthrows the religious authority of Israel's leadership. So once again, he's being the kind of Messiah that will initiate the purity of worship, the purity of life in the kingdom that once again will operate from the inside out, not the outside in. Mm. Yeah, he's he's not overturning Rome. He's overturning the tables of the money changers. That's right. That's temple. right. Yes. Yeah, that'll preach, too. <laughs> no, I'm like, that makes me uncomfortable for our leadership in the church today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. Mm. So walk us through, there's a handful of discourses here, but then I, I want to push on to uh, chapter 23, because it's so significant mm-hmm. um, in this whole thing. So you have chapters 23 through 25, which really encapsulates this, uh, what is sometimes known as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is is rebuking the leadership of the Jews, and then is also speaking judgment over not just Jerusalem, but uh, the temple, especially. Right. And so walk us through what he's doing in this section. Well, we mentioned the triumphal entry where Jesus is asserting his divine authority over Israel and its leadership. And that really runs from chapters 21, 22, the debates in the temple area with the religious leaders, all of them. He debates all of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then in chapter 23, I think it culminates this narrative where now he gives these uh, woes and warnings uh, related to the religious leadership of yeah. uh, he's warning the people that they're taking you in the wrong direction. Yep. And he said, they will, they will pay for it. And then comes the, the last discourse, which is the Olivet discourse, chapters 24 and 25, where Jesus gives an indication of the destruction of the temple that will occur in AD 70. But he also looks ahead to a future time when there will be another temple that will be destroyed 
And what he's now doing is he's, he's giving lessons on how we should operate as kingdom people during this age until he returns in glory. Mm. So it's what scholars refer to as an eschatological prophecy. What's going to happen uh, in the already not yet anticipation of Jesus' return? Yeah, and eschatology is just a like the study of the what's going to happen at the end. That's right. But I, I want to double click because this is always, this is one of my favorite parts of Matthew is at the end of chapter 23. Like you said, he's condemning the religious leaders, but a lot of people read over this. And I, this is one of those times where Mike, you said a, a minute ago, like, man, if Jesus is not blowing you away, then you don't get it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I'm like, amen. But this is one of those times where, uh, most of the time, at least for me, when I read this, I get it because it blows it blows my hair back. Um, because in verse thirty four, he's standing in judgment of really the temple and its our leaders. But he says, "I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you'll kill and crucify; others you'll flog in the synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that's been shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah of Berechiah." whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. And then he has this, you know, when I hear people read this next section, a lot of times it's like this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thank you for that great devotional. Close the Bible. <laughs> and I'm just like, no, you just butchered it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you here's a guy. So think about all of the entire history of creation itself and the entire uh, story of mankind. And it comes to this one moment yeah. where there is this itinerant preacher, rabbi in Palestine in the first century who's standing over Jerusalem. And he's lamenting the fact that he's been sending prophets and wise men down to the Jews for uh, hundreds of years, and they keep killing them. Yeah. And he's like, you're just going to keep doing the same thing. And then he's lamenting over the city. He's like, man, you guys, you guys kill the prophets, and you stone the ones sent to you. I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing and that just the emotion in that, that yeah. I see like Jesus is just like, he's weeping over Jerusalem because Jerusalem for him is not some disinteresting type place. I mean, this is the center of really the heart of Israel, and he's just distraught. Yes. And I, man, I think a lot of times that just gets lost. And also, frankly, the fact that, you know, that claim that he's been sending wise men and prophets, you know, I, I mean, people who are sitting there are like, wait, what'd that guy say? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, he's he's identifying himself with Yahweh, with he God. He is, he um, is. It's crazy, man. Identifying himself with God as Israel's Savior, the coming one. I mean, that's, 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 that's a powerful statement. Yeah, yeah. Well, and lamenting over the fact that they have been killing these prophets, yes. knowing that in a few days he's going to be the next one. Yeah. Yes. But yes. with the understanding that, like, I'm coming back, yeah. like, yeah. it is yeah. not over. 
And so I lament that this is who you are today, but I'm going to provide a way. I'm going to show you. Yeah, I think it says, it speaks to just, again, the nature of God. Like, God is not a disinterested person. Right. We talked about this with uh, uh, the book of Revelation. You see these judgments of God, and a lot of times people are like, well, God must be this angry. And I'm like, how do you think man's rebellion and rejection of their creator, how do you think that makes him feel? Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. And I think we get a picture of it here. One of grief and yes. he's lamenting the fact that I don't I don't want you to die. I've longed to gather you under my wings, but you were not willing. Yes. Uh, that's just as a parent, I'm sitting there going, I, yeah. can, I can that resonates with me. Yes, it does. It does. All right. So we reached the end of the Olivet Discourse and uh, we hit the beginning of chapter twenty six and, and the plots to kill the Messiah are up and coming, they're getting ready. And so help us understand as we, as we go into these last few chapters, the betrayal of Judas, uh, his last moments with his disciples, lean into some of those and help us understand just what Jesus is doing, what he might be feeling, all of that. Yeah, this, this last part, these are the longest chapters in Matthew 26 and 27 that give all of the events that reveal the duplicity, once again, of the religious leaders, that uh, they had an agenda. Jesus doesn't fit their agenda. And so they are going to work the system to get him uh, arrested, to get him crucified. I mean, when they bring Jesus before the Sanhedrin, once he is betrayed by Judas, there's a really a fake trial, as most scholars would indicate, and he is condemned by the religious leaders for blasphemy, that is, making himself out to be God or in the place of God. So they condemn him for that. But then when they take him to Pilate, that's not going to fly with the Romans. They don't, they don't care if there's another God. They have many of them anyway. So they change the charge now to treason, that he has been working to overthrow Rome. And so they concoct these other charges that the whole thing is, all of this is now just uh, a religious and political game mm-hmm. that the Romans and now the religious leaders of Israel have conspired in. And so it's just a tragic, tragic scene of Jesus is crucified as a king of the Jews. He truly is a king of the Jews, but not the kind of king that uh, they had wanted. Mm-hmm. But what's powerful then is up steps one of the religious leaders, Joseph of Arimathea, and he has become a disciple of Jesus secretly. The people didn't know about this, but he is a disciple of Jesus. He claims the body and then puts Jesus' body in his own tomb. And the wonderful thing here, too, is that the women who had followed Jesus from the Galilee region for several weeks, maybe even months, they had been serving Jesus by funding the, this whole missionary tour. They now are the courageous ones who are there at the tomb when he's buried. They're at the tomb when it's suddenly realized that he has been raised. He's the resurrected Messiah. He was crucified Messiah. Now he's the resurrected Messiah. Then, then again, this greatest miracle of history. You know, even as I'm sitting here listening to you, it just, I think it just highlights how much 
Jesus loves his people. Yes. Uh, Just the self-control that it must have taken to stand in front of these men who are condemning him, who believe, like truly believe that they had the power to kill him. And he's sitting there going, no, I lay my life down. Yes. Uh, And and to go to the cross, like, I'm just blown away all over again by the love that he has for us. Yes. Yeah. And and I think too, there's a, at his examination, you have another, almost like a lesser version of uh, transfiguration where they're asking him. And and really, I think one of, this gets to your point, Karen, about the love that Jesus has for his, for really all of creation, Mm -hmm. you know, his people is that you have these false witnesses that come and nobody can get their story straight. I mean, the reality of it is, as I've heard one of my buddies say, is Jesus had to help them <laughs> condemn him, right? I mean, he could have kept his mouth shut, but yeah. instead he says this statement, you know, in, in 2664, where he's like, I'm telling all of you guys, in the future, you're going to see this son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven, which yeah. is a really clear allusion to Daniel chapter 7, where you have this divine son of man figure who's given authority by the ancient of days to judge the nations. Now, the irony of this is like dripping off the page because here you have standing in front of this mock Sanhedrin examination that's a total farce. The person at the very center of it who's being quote unquote examined is the judge of the whole world. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and Jesus yeah. is going. Hang on, guys. You just real, yeah. real yeah. quick. Like, let's feel, let's get straight who the actual judge is. But he also knows that that is like we've talked about before. That there's this incremental working of the kingdom of God into kind of enemy occupied territory. And Jesus is like, hey, before that happens, though, I'm going to go get my people back. Yes. So the cross of Jesus is the way that he defeats his enemies, which is totally crazy. Yeah, and then Matthew just, you know, he he concludes it with this powerful resurrection scene, Mm. but then he carries it one step further in exactly what you were alluding to here. He now appears to the 11 Mm. in Galilee and declares that all authority has been given to him. Yeah, so yeah. he's giving a hint of that to the Sanhedrin when, with this sham of a trial. Mm-hmm. But now he shows that he is the victorious one yeah. who has all authority and then gives his great commission. So it, Matthew's just woven together some powerful scenes. Oh, yeah, totally. I love it, man. Well, this has been a great conversation. It's been, like, hugely encouraging oh, to yeah. just, like, move through the book, like, you know? Man, Jesus was awesome. Yeah. Crushed it. <laughs> Crushed it. Good job, God. <laughs> but, uh, but Mike, man, we appreciate your expertise. We appreciate you being with us. And hopefully, uh, listeners, as, you, as you've listened to this, hopefully this has been encouraging. Hey, we, we would definitely encourage you to just dive into the book of Matthew. I mean, you've heard us take 30 or 40 minutes here and, and summarize it for you, but there's so much more there. Yeah. And you can grab... You can grab Mike's commentary, the NIV application commentary. It's a great mixture of solid scholarship, but given in a way that is accessible to a lay audience. So please go pick that up and just move through the book. It's a powerful book. It's a really powerful book. So Mike, thanks, man. We really appreciate it. My privilege to be with you guys. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. If you liked it, subscribe, tell your friends, send us an email. We would love to read it. Email, email, email. Yeah. 
Uh, I think I'm supposed to say bye now. Bye. Peace. <laughs>